Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Grey Woman by Mrs. Elizabeth Gaskell, Portion 3 Far on in the night there were voices outside reached us in our hiding place, an angry knocking at the door, and we saw through the chinks the old woman rouse herself up to go and open it for her master, who came in, evidently half drunk. To my sick horror, he was followed by Lefebvre, apparently as sober and wily as ever. They were talking together as they came in, disputing about something, but the miller stopped the conversation to swear at the old woman for having fallen asleep, and with tipsy anger and even with blows, drove the poor old creature out of the kitchen to bed. Then he and Lefebvre went on talking about the Sieur de Poissy's disappearance. It seemed that Lefebvre had been out all day, along with other of my husband's men, ostensibly assisting in the search in all probability trying to blind the Sieur de Poissy's followers by putting them on a wrong scent, and also, I fancied, from one or two of Lefebvre's sly questions, combining the hidden purpose of discovering us. Although the miller was tenant and vassal to the Sieur de Poissy, he seemed to me to be much more in league with the people of Monsieur de la Tourelle. He was evidently aware in part of the life which Lefebvre and the others led, although again, I do not suppose he knew or imagined one half of their crimes, and also, I think, he was seriously interested in discovering the fate of his master, little suspecting Lefebvre of murder or violence. He kept talking to himself and letting out all sorts of thoughts and opinions watched by the keen eyes of Lefebvre gleaming out below his shaggy eyebrows. It was evidently not the cue of the latter to let out that his master's wife had escaped from that violent, terrible den. But though he never breathed a word relating to us, nonetheless I was certain he was thirsting for our blood and lying in wait for us at every turn of events. Presently he got up and took his leave, and the miller bolted him out and stumbled off to bed. Then we fell asleep and slept long and sound. The next morning, when I awoke, I saw a man half-raised, resting on one hand, and eagerly gazing with straining eyes into the kitchen below. I looked too, and both heard and saw the miller and two of his men eagerly and loudly talking about the old woman, who had not appeared as usual to make the fire in the stove and prepare her master's breakfast, and who now, late on in the morning, had been found dead in her bed. Whether from the effect of her master's blows the night before, or from natural causes, who can tell? The miller's conscience upbraided him a little, I should say, for he was eagerly declaring his value for his housekeeper, and repeating how often she had spoken of the happy life she led with him. The men might have their doubts, but they didn't wish to offend the miller, and all agreed that the necessary steps should be taken for a speedy funeral. And so they went out, leaving us in our loft, but so much alone, that for the first time almost we ventured to speak freely, though still in a hushed tone, pausing to listen continually. Amant took a more cheerful view of the whole occurrence than I did. She said that had the old woman lived, we should have had to depart that morning, and that this quiet departure would have been the best thing we could have had to hope for, as in all probability the housekeeper would have told her master of us and of our resting place, and this fact would, sooner or later, have been brought to the knowledge of those from whom we most desired to keep it concealed. 
but that now we had time to rest at a shelter to rest in during the first hot pursuit, which we knew with a fatal certainty was being carried on. The remnants of our food and the stored-up fruit would supply us with provision. The only thing to be feared was that something might be required from the loft and the miller or someone else mount up in search of it. But even then, with a little arrangement of boxes and chests, one part might be so kept in shadow that we might yet escape observation. All this comforted me a little, but I asked how we were ever to escape. The ladder was taken away, which was our only means of descent. But Amant replied that she could make a sufficient ladder of the rope lying coiled among other things to drop us down the ten feet or so, with the advantage of its being portable, so that we might carry it away and thus avoid all betrayal of the fact that anyone had ever been hidden in the loft. During the two days that intervened before we did escape, Amant made good use of her time. She looked into every box and chest during the man's absence at his mill, and finding in one box an old suit of man's clothes, which had probably belonged to the miller's absent son, she put them on to see if they would fit her. And when she found that they did, she cut her own hair to the shortness of a man's, made me clip her black eyebrows as close as though they had been shaved, and by cutting up old corks into pieces such as would go into her cheeks, she altered both the shape of her face and her voice to a degree which I should not have believed possible. All this time I lay like one stunned, my body resting and renewing its strength, but I myself in a most idiotic state, else surely I could not have taken the stupid interest which I remember I did in all a man's energetic preparations for disguise. I absolutely recollect once the feeling of a smile coming over my stiff face as some new exercise of her cleverness proved a success. But towards the second day, she required me too to exert myself, and then all my heavy despair returned. I let her dye my fair hair and complexion with the decaying shells of the stored-up walnuts. I let her blacken my teeth, and even voluntarily broke a front tooth the better to effect my disguise. But through it all, I had no hope of evading my terrible husband. The third night, the funeral was over, the drinking ended, the guests gone, the miller put to bed by his men being too drunk to help himself. They stopped a little while in the kitchen, talking and laughing about the new housekeeper likely to come, and they too went off shutting, but not locking the door. Everything favoured us. Amant had tried her ladder on one of the two previous nights and could, by a dexterous throw from beneath, unfasten it from the hook to which it was fixed when it had served its office. She made up a bundle of worthless old clothes in order that we might the better preserve our characters of a travelling peddler and his wife. She stuffed a hump on her back. She thickened my figure. She left her own clothes deep down beneath the heap of others in the chest from which she had taken the man's dress which she wore, and with a few francs in her pocket, the sole money we had either of us had about us when we escaped, we let ourselves down the ladder, unhooked it, and passed into the cold darkness of the night again. We had discussed the route which it would be well for us to take while we lay perdu in our loft. Amant had told me then that her reason for inquiring when we had first left Les Rochers, by which way I had first been brought to it, was to avoid the pursuit which she was sure would first be made in the direction of Germany but that now she thought we might return to that district of country where my German fashion of speaking French would excite least observation. I thought that Amant herself had something peculiar in her accent, 
which I had heard Monsieur de la Tourelle sneer at as the Norman patois, but I said not a word beyond agreeing to her proposal that we should bend our steps towards Germany. Once there we should, I thought, be safe. Alas, I forgot the unruly time that was overspreading all Europe, overturning all law and all the protection which law gives. How we wandered, not daring to ask our way, how we lived, how we struggled through many a danger and still more terrors of danger, I shall not tell you now. I will only relate two of our adventures before we reached Frankfurt. The first, although fatal to an innocent lady, was yet, I believe, the cause of my safety. The second, I shall tell you, that you may understand why I did not return to my former home, as I had hoped to do, when we lay in the miller's loft, and I first became capable of groping after an idea of what my future life might be. I cannot tell you how much in these doubtings and wanderings I became attached to Amant. I have sometimes feared since, lest I cared for her only because she was so necessary to my own safety. But no, it was not so, or not so only, or principally. She said once that she was flying for her own life as well as for mine, but we dared not speak much on our danger, or on the horrors that had gone before. We planned a little what was to be our future course, but even for that we did not look forward long. How could we, when every day we scarcely knew if we should see the sun go down? For Amant knew or conjectured far more than I did of the atrocity of the gang to which Monsieur de la Tourelle belonged, and every now and then, just as we seemed to be sinking into the calm of security, we fell upon traces of a pursuit after us in all directions. Once I remember, we must have been nearly three weeks of wearily walking through unfrequented ways, day after day, not daring to make inquiry as to our whereabouts, nor yet to seem purposeless in our wanderings. We came to a kind of lonely roadside farriers and blacksmiths. I was so tired that Amant declared that come what might, we would stay there all night, and accordingly she entered the house and boldly announced herself as a travelling tailor, ready to do any odd jobs of work that might be required for a night's lodging and food for herself and wife. She had adopted this plan once or twice before, and with good success, for her father had been a tailor in Rouen, and as a girl she had often helped him with his work, and knew the tailor's slang and habits down to the particular whistle and cry which in France tells so much to those of a trade. At this blacksmith's, as at most other solitary houses far away from a town, there was not only a store of men's clothes laid by as wanting mending when the housewife could afford time, but there was a natural craving after news from a distance. Such news as a wandering tailor is bound to furnish. The early November afternoon was closing into evening as we sat down, she cross-legged on the great table in the blacksmith's garden, drawn close to the window, I close behind her, sewing at another part of the same garment, and from time to time well scolded by my seeming husband. All at once she turned round to speak to me. It was only one word. Courage. I had seen nothing. I sat out of the light, but I turned sick for an instant, and then I braced myself up into a strange strength of endurance to go through I knew not what. The blacksmith's forge was in a shed beside the house, and fronting the road. I heard the hammers stop plying their continual rhythmical beat. She had seen why they ceased. A rider had come up to the forge and dismounted, leading his horse in to be re-shod. The broad red light of the forge fire had revealed the face of the rider to a month, and she apprehended the consequence that really ensued. The rider, 
after some words with the blacksmith, was ushered in by him into the house-place where we sat. Here, good wife, a cup of wine and some galette for this gentleman. Anything, anything, madame, that I can eat and drink in my hand while my horse is being shod. I am in haste and must get on to Forbach tonight. The blacksmith's wife lighted her lamp. Amant had asked her for it five minutes before. How thankful we were that she had not more speedily complied with our request. As it was, we sat in dusk shadow, pretending to stitch away, but scarcely able to see. The lamp was placed on the stove near which my husband, for it was he, stood and warmed himself. By and by he turned round and looked all over the room, taking us in with about the same degree of interest as the inanimate furniture. Amant, cross-legged, fronting him, stooped over her work, whistling softly all the while. He turned again to the stove, impatiently rubbing his hand. He had finished his wine and galette, and wanted to be off. I am in haste, my good woman. Ask thy husband to get on more quickly. I'll pay him double if he makes haste. The woman went out to do his bidding, and he once more turned round to face us. Amant went on to the second part of the tune. He took it up whistled a second for an instant or so, and then the blacksmith's wife re-entering, he moved towards her, as if to receive her answer the more speedily. One moment, monsieur, only one moment. There was a nail out of the off-foreshoe which my husband is replacing. It would delay monsieur again if that shoe also came off. Madame is right, said he, but my haste is urgent. If madame knew my reasons, she would pardon my impatience. Once a happy husband, now a deserted and betrayed man. I pursue a wife on whom I lavished all my love, but who has abused my confidence and fled from my house doubtless to some paramour, carrying off with her all the jewels and money on which she could lay her hands. It is possible madame may have heard or seen something of her. She was accompanied in her flight by a base profligate woman from Paris, whom I, unhappy man, had myself engaged for my wife's waiting-maid, little dreaming what corruption I was bringing into my house. Is it possible? said the good woman, throwing up her hands. Amance went on whistling a little lower, out of respect to the conversation. However, I am tracing the wicked fugitives. I am on their track. And the handsome, effeminate face looked as ferocious as any demon's. They will not escape me. But every minute is a minute of misery to me till I meet my wife again. Madame has sympathy, has she not? Madame has sympathy, has she not? He drew his face into a hard and natural smile, and then both went out to the forge as if once more to hasten the blacksmith over his work. Amant stopped her whistling for one instant. Go on as you are without a change of an eyelid even. In a few minutes he will be gone, and it will be over. It was a necessary caution, for I was on the point of giving way and throwing myself weakly upon her neck. We went on, she whistling and stitching, I making semblance to sew, and it was well we did so, for almost directly he came back for his whip, which he had laid down and forgotten, and again I felt one of those sharp, quick-scanning glances sent all around the room and taking in all. Then we heard him ride away, and then, it had been long too dark to see well. I dropped my work and gave way to my trembling and shuddering. The blacksmith's wife returned. She was a good creature. Amant told her I was cold and weary, and she insisted on my stopping my work and going to sit near the stove, 
hastening at the same time her preparations for supper, which, in honour of us, and of Monsieur's liberal payment, was to be a little less frugal than ordinary. It was well for me that she made me taste a little of the cider soup she was preparing, or I could not have held up, in spite of a man's warning look, and the remembrance of her frequent exhortations to act resolutely up to the characters we had assumed whatever befell. To cover my agitation, Amance stopped her whistling and began to talk, and by the time the blacksmith came in, she and the good woman of the house were in full flow. He began at once upon the handsome gentleman who had paid him so well. All his sympathy was with him, and both he and his wife only wished he might overtake his wicked wife and punish her as she deserved. And then the conversation took a turn, not uncommon to those whose lives are quiet and monotonous. Every one seemed to vie with each other in telling about some horror, and the savage and mysterious band of robbers called the Chauffeur, who infested all the roads leading to the Rhine, with Shindahannes at their head, furnished many a tale which made the very marrow of my bones run cold and quenched even a month's power of talking. Her eyes grew large and wild, her cheeks blanched, and for once she sought by her looks help from me. The new call upon me roused me. I rose and said, with their permission, My husband and I would seek our bed, for that we had travelled far and were early risers. I added that we would get up betimes and finish our piece of work. The blacksmith said we should be early birds if we rose before him, and the good wife seconded my proposal with kindly bustle. One other such story as those they had been relating, and I do believe Amant would have fainted. As it was, a night's rest set her up. We arose and finished our work betimes, and shared the plentiful breakfast of the family. Then we had to set forth again, only knowing that to Forbach we must not go, yet believing, as was indeed the case, that Forbach lay between us and that Germany to which we were directing our course. Two days more we wandered on, making a round, I suspect, and returning upon the road to Forbach, a league or two nearer to that town than the blacksmith's house. But, as we never made inquiries, I hardly knew where we were when we came on one night to a small town with a good large rambling inn in the very centre of the principal street. We had begun to feel as if there were more safety in towns than in the loneliness of the country. As we had parted with a ring of mine not many days before to a travelling jeweller who was too glad to purchase it far below its real value to make inquiries as to how it came into the possession of a poor working tailor such as a month seemed to be, we resolved to stay at this inn all night and gather such particulars and information as we could by which to direct our onward course. We took our supper in the darkest corner of the salle à manger, having previously bargained for a small bedroom across the court and over the stables. We needed food sorely, but we were hurried on our meal from dread of anyone entering that public room who might recognise us. Just in the middle of our meal, the public diligence drove lumbering up under the porte cochère and disgorged its passengers. Most of them turned into the room where we sat, cowering and fearful. The door was opposite to the porter's lodge, and both opened onto the wide-covered entrance from the street. Among the passengers came in a young, fair-haired lady, attended by an elderly French maid. The poor young creature tossed her head and shrank away from the common room, full of evil smells and promiscuous company, and demanded in German-French to be taken to some private apartment. We heard that she and her maid had come into the coupé, and probably from pride, poor young lady, 
she had avoided all association with her fellow passengers, thereby exciting their dislike and ridicule. All these little pieces of hearsay had a significance to us afterwards, though at the time the only remark made that bore upon the future was a man's whisper to me that the young lady's hair was exactly the colour of mine, which she had cut off and burnt in the stove of the miller's kitchen in one of her descents from our hiding place in the loft. As soon as we could, we struck round in shadow, leaving the boisterous and merry fellow passengers to their supper. We crossed the court, borrowed a lantern from the ostler, and scrambled up the rude steps to our chamber above the stable. There was no door in it. The entrance was the hole into which the ladder fitted. The window looked into the court. We were tired and soon fell asleep. I was wakened by a noise in the stable below. One instant of listening, and I wakened Amant, placing my hand on her mouth to prevent any exclamation in her half-roused state. We heard my husband speaking about his horse to the ostler. It was his voice. I'm sure of it. Amant said so too. We durst not move to rise and satisfy ourselves. For five minutes or so he went on giving directions. Then he left the stable, and softly stealing through our window we saw him cross the court and re-enter the inn. We consulted as to what we should do. We feared to excite remark or suspicion by descending and leaving our chamber, or else immediate escape was our strongest idea. Then the ostler left the stable, locking the door on the outside. We must try and drop through the window, if indeed it is well to go at all, said Amant. With reflection came wisdom. We should excite suspicion by leaving without paying our bill. We were on foot and might easily be pursued. So we sat on our bed's edge, talking and shivering, while from across the court the laughter rang merrily, and the company slowly dispersed one by one, their lights flitting past the windows as they went upstairs and settled, each one to his rest. We crept into our bed, holding each other tight and listening to every sound, as if we thought we were tracked and might meet our death at any moment. In the dead of night, just at the profound stillness preceding the turn into another day, we heard a soft, cautious step crossing the yard. The key into the stable was turned. Someone came into the stable. We felt rather than heard him there. A horse started little, and made a little restless movement with his feet, then whinnied recognition. He who had entered made two or three low sounds to the animal, and then led him into the court. Amant sprang to the window with the noiseless activity of a cat. She looked out, but dared not speak a word. We heard the great door into the street open, a pause for mounting, and the horse's footsteps were lost in the distance. Then Amant came back to me. It was he. He's gone, said she. And once more we lay down, trembling and shaking. This time we fell sound asleep. We slept long and late. We were wakened by many hurrying feet and many confused voices. All the world seemed awake and astir. We rose and dressed ourselves, and coming down we looked around among the crowd collected in the courtyard in order to assure ourselves he was not there before we left the shelter of the stable. The instant we were seen, two or three people rushed to us. Have you heard? Do you know? That poor young lady? Oh, oh come and see! And so we were hurried almost in spite of ourselves across the court and up the great open stairs of the main building of the inn into a bedchamber where lay the beautiful young German lady so full of graceful pride the night before, now white 
and still in death. By her stood the French maid, crying and gesticulating. Oh, madam, if you had but suffered me to stay with you. Oh, oh, the baron, what will he say? And so she went on. Her state had been just been dis- Her state had but just been discovered. It had been supposed that she was fatigued and was sleeping late until a few moments before. The surgeon of the town had been sent for, and the landlord of the inn was trying vainly to enforce order until he came, and from time to time drinking little cups of brandy and offering them to the guests who were all assembled there, pretty much as the servants were doing in the courtyard. See, said the landlord, this lady came last night by the diligence with her maid, doubtless a great lady, for she must have a private sitting-room. She was Madame de Baroness de Ruder, said the French maid, and it was difficult to please in the matter of supper and a sleeping-room. She went to bed well, though fatigued. Her maid left her. I begged to be allowed to sleep in her room as we were in a strange inn, of the character of which we knew nothing, but she would not let me. My mistress was such a great lady. And slept with my servants, continued the landlord. This morning we thought Madame was still slumbering, but when eight, nine, ten, and near eleven o'clock came, I bade her maid use my pass-key and enter her room. The door was not locked, only closed, and, and here she was found, dead. Is she not, monsieur, with her face down on the pillow and her beautiful hair all scattered wild? She never would let me tie it up, saying it made her headache. Such hair, said the waiting maid, lifting up a long golden tress and letting it fall again. I remembered Amant's words the night before and crept close up to her. Meanwhile, the doctor was examining the body underneath the bedclothes, which the landlord, until now, had not allowed to be disarranged. The surgeon drew out his hand, all bathed and stained with blood, and holding up a short, sharp knife with a piece of paper fastened around it. Here has been foul play, he said. The deceased lady has been murdered. This dagger was aimed straight at her heart. Then, putting on his spectacles, he read the writing on the bloody paper, dimmed and horribly obscured, as it was. Numéro un. Ainsi les chauffeurs s'avengent. Let us go, said I to Amant. Oh, let us leave this horrible place. Wait a little, said she. Oh, only a few minutes more. It, it will be better. Immediately the voices of all proclaimed their suspicions of the cavalier who had arrived last the night before. He had, they said, made so many inquiries about the young lady whose supercilious conduct all in the salle manger had been discussing on his entrance. They were talking about her as we left the room. He must have come in directly afterwards, and not until he had learned all about her had he spoken of the business which necessitated his departure at dawn of the day and made his arrangements with both landlord and ostler for the possession of the keys of the stable and port cochere. In short, there was no doubt as to the murderer. Even before the arrival of the legal functionary who had been sent for by the surgeon, but the word on the paper chilled everyone with terror. Les chauffeurs, who were they? No one knew. Some of the gang might even then be in the room overhearing and noting down fresh objects for vengeance. In Germany I had heard little of this terrible gang, and I had paid no greater heed to the stories related once or twice about them in Karlsruhe than one does to tales about ogres. But here, in their very haunts, I learned the full amount of the terror they inspired. No one would be legally responsible for any evidence criminating the murderer. The public prosecutor shrank from the duties of his office. What do I say? 
neither romance nor I, knowing far more of the actual guilt of the man who had killed that poor sleeping young lady, durst breathe a word. We appeared to be wholly ignorant of everything we, who might have told so much. But how could we? We were broken down with terrific anxiety and fatigue, with the knowledge that we, above all, were doomed victims, and that the blood heavily dripping from the bedclothes onto the floor was dripping thus out of the poor dead body, because, when living, she had been mistaken for me. At length, Amant went up to the landlord and asked permission to leave his inn, doing all openly and humbly so as to excite neither ill-will nor suspicion. Indeed, suspicion was otherwise directed, and he willingly gave us leave to depart. A few days afterwards, we were across the Rhine in Germany, making our way towards Frankfurt, but still keeping our disguises, and Amant still working at her trade. On the way we met a young man, a wandering journeyman from Heidelberg. I knew him, although I did not choose that he should know me. I asked him as carelessly as I could how the old miller was now. He told me he was dead. This realisation of the worst apprehension caused by his long silence shocked me inexpressibly. It seemed as though every prop gave way from under me. I had been talking to Amant only that very day of the safety and comfort of the home that awaited her in my father's house, of the gratitude which the old man would feel towards her, and how there in that peaceful dwelling, far away from the terrible land of France, she should find ease and security for all the rest of her life. All this I thought I had to promise, and even yet more had I looked for, for myself. I looked to the unburdening of my heart and conscience by telling all I knew to my best and wisest friend. I looked to his love as a sure guidance as well as a comforting stay. And behold, he was gone away from me forever. I had left the room hastily on hearing of this sad news from the Heidelberger. Presently, Amant followed. Poor madame, said she, consoling me to the best of her ability and then she told me by degrees what more she had learned respecting my home, about which she knew almost as much as I did from my frequent talks on the subject, both at Les Rochers and on the dreary, doleful road we had come along. She had continued the conversation after I left by asking about my brother and his wife. Of course they lived on at the mill, but the man said, with what truth I know not, but I believed it firmly at the time, that Babette had completely got the upper hand of my brother who only saw through her eyes and heard with her ears, that there had been much Heidelberg gossip of late days about her sudden intimacy with a grand French gentleman who had appeared at the mill, a relation by marriage, married in fact to the miller's sister, who by all accounts had behaved abominably and ungratefully. But that was no reason for Babette's extreme and sudden intimacy with him, going about everywhere with the French gentleman, and since he left, as the Heidelberger said he knew for a fact, corresponding with him constantly. Yet her husband saw no harm in it all, seemingly, though to be sure he was so out of spirits, what with his father's death and the news of his sister's infamy, that he hardly knew how to hold up his head. Now, said Amant, all this proves that Monsieur de la Tourelle has suspected that you would go back to the nest in which you were reared, and that he has been there, and found that you have not yet returned but probably he still imagines that you will do so, and has accordingly engaged your sister-in-law as a kind of informant. Madame has said that her sister-in-law bore her no extreme goodwill, 
and a defamatory story has got the start of us in spreading, will not tend to increase the favour in which your sister-in-law holds you. No doubt the assassin was retracing his steps when we met him near Forbach, and having heard of the poor German lady with her French maid and her pretty blonde complexion, he followed her. If madame will still be guided by me and my child, I beg of you still to trust me, said Amant, breaking out of her respectful formality into the way of talking more natural to those who had shared and escaped from common dangers. More natural, too, where the speaker was conscious of a power of protection which the other did not possess. We will go on to Frankfurt and lose ourselves for a time at least in the numbers of people who throng a great town. And you have told me that Frankfurt is a great town. We will still be husband and wife. We will take a small lodging, and you shall housekeep and live indoors. I, as the rougher and more alert, will continue my father's trade and seek work at the tailor's shops. I could think of no better plan, so we followed this out. In the back street at Frankfurt we found two furnished rooms to let on the sixth story. The one we entered had no light from day, a dingy lamp swung perpetually from the ceiling, and from that or from the open door leading to the bedroom beyond came our only light. The bedroom was more cheerful, but very small. Such as it was, it almost exceeded our possible means. The money from the sale of my ring was almost exhausted, and the man was a stranger in the place, speaking only French, moreover, and the good Germans were hating the French people right heartily. However, we succeeded better than our hopes, and even laid by a little against the time of my confinement. I never stirred abroad and saw no one, and a man's want of knowledge of German kept her in a state of comparative isolation. At length, my child was born. My poor, worse than fatherless child. It was a girl, as I had prayed for. I had feared lest a boy might have something of the tiger nature of its father, but a girl seemed all my own. And yet, not all my own, for the faithful amount's delight and glory in the babe almost exceeded mine. In outward show, it certainly did. We had not been able to afford any attendance beyond what a neighbouring sage femme could give, and she came frequently bringing in with her a little store of gossip and wonderful tales culled out of her own experience every time. One day she began to tell me about a great lady in whose service her daughter had lived as a scullion or some such thing. Such a beautiful lady, with such a handsome husband, but grief comes to the palace as well as to the garret, and why or wherefore no one knew, but somehow the Baron de Ruerder must have incurred the vengeance of the terrible chauffeur, for not many months ago, as Madame was going to see her relations in Alsace, she was stabbed dead as she lay in bed at some hotel on the road. Had I not seen it in the Gazette? Had I not heard? Why, she had been told that as far off as Lyon there were placards offering a heavy reward on the part of the Baron de Rude for information respecting the murder of his wife. But no one could help him, for all who could bear evidence were in such terror of the chauffeur. There were hundreds of them, she had been told, rich and poor, great gentlemen and peasants, all leagued together by most frightful oaths to hunt to the death anyone who bore witness against them, so that even they who survived the tortures to which the chauffeur subjected many of the people whom they had plundered dared not to recognise them again, would not dare, even did they see them at the bar of a court of justice, for if one were condemned, were they not hundreds sworn to avenge his death? I told all of this to Amant and we began to fear that if Monsieur de la Tourelle or Lefebvre or any of the gang at Les Rochers had seen these placards, they would know 
that the poor lady stabbed by the former was the Baroness de Ruder, and that they would set forth again in search of me. This fresh apprehension told of my health and impeded my recovery. We had so little money we could not call in a physician, at least not when in established practice. But Amant found out a young doctor for whom indeed she had sometimes worked, and offering to pay him in kind, she brought him to see me, a sick wife. He was very gentle and thoughtful, though like ourselves, very poor. But he gave much time and consideration to the case, saying once to Amant that he saw my constitution had experienced some severe shock from which it was probable that my nerves would never entirely recover. By and by I shall name this doctor, and then you will know better than I can describe his character. I grew strong in time, stronger at least. I was able to work a little at home and to sun myself and my baby at the garret window in the roof. It was all the air I dared to take. I constantly wore the disguise I had first set out with, as constantly had I renewed the disfiguring dye which changed my hair and complexion. But the perpetual state of terror in which I had been during the whole month succeeding my escape from Le Rocher made me loathe the idea of ever again walking in the open daylight, exposed to the sight and recognition of every passer-by. In vain Amant reasoned, in vain the doctor urged. Docile in every other thing, in this I was obstinate. I would not stir out. One day Amant returned from her work full of news, some of it good, some such as the causes apprehension. The good news was this. The master for whom she worked as journeyman was going to send her with some others to a great house at the other side of Frankfurt, where there were to be private theatricals, and where many new dresses and much alteration of old ones would be required. The tailors employed were all to stay at this house until the day of representation was over, as it was at some distance from the town, and no one could tell when their work would be ended, but the pay was to be proportionately good. The other thing she had to say was this. She had that day met the travelling jeweller to whom she and I had sold my ring. It was a rather peculiar one given to me by my husband. We had felt at the time that it might be the means of tracing us, but we were penniless and starving, and what else could we do? She had seen that this Frenchman had recognised her at the same instant that she did him, and she thought at the same time that there was a gleam of more than common intelligence on his face as he did so. This idea had been confirmed by his following her for some way on the other side of the street, but she had evaded him with her better knowledge of the town and the increasing darkness of the night. Still, it was well that she was going to such a distance from our dwelling on the next day, and she had brought me in a stock of provisions, begging me to keep within doors, with a strange kind of fearful oblivion of the fact that I had never set foot beyond the threshold of the house since I had first entered it, scarce ever ventured down the stairs. But although my poor, my dear, very faithful amant was like one possessed that last night, she spoke continually of the dead, which is a bad sign for the living. She kissed you. Yes, it was you, my daughter, my darling, whom I bore beneath my bosom away from the fearful castle of your father. I call him so for the first time. I must call him so once again before I have done. Amant kissed you, sweet baby, blessed little comforter, as if she never could leave off. And then she went away, alive. Two days, three days passed away. Then, a third evening, I was sitting within my bolted doors. You were asleep on your pillow by my side, when a step came up the stair, and I knew it must be for me, for hours were the topmost rooms. Someone knocked. I held my very breath. 
but someone spoke, and I knew it was the good Dr. Voss. Then I crept to the door and answered, Are you alone? asked I. Yes, said he, in a still lower voice. Let me in. I let him in, and he was as alert as I in bolting and barring the door. Then he came and whispered to me his doleful tale. He had come from the hospital, in the opposite quarter of the town, the hospital which he visited. He should have been with me sooner, but he had feared lest he should be watched. He had come from a man's deathbed. Her fears of the jeweller were too well founded. She had left the house where she was employed that morning to transact some errand connected with her work in the town. She must have been followed and dogged on her way back through solitary wood paths for some of the wood rangers belonging to the great house had found her there, lying, stabbed to death, but not dead, with the poniard again plunged through the fatal writing once more, but this time with the word un underlined, so as to show the assassin was aware of his previous mistake. Numéro un. Ainsi le chauffeur se venge. They had carried her to the house and given her restoratives till she had recovered the feeble use of her speech. But, oh, faithful, dear friend and sister, even then she remembered me and refused to tell what no one else among her fellow workmen knew, where she lived or with whom. Life was ebbing away fast and they had no resource but to carry her to the nearest hospital, where, of course, the fact of her sex was made known. Fortunately for both her and for me, the doctor in attendance was the very Dr. Voss, whom we already knew. To him, while awaiting her confessor, she told enough to enable him to understand the position in which I was left, before the priest had heard half the tale. Amant was dead. Dr. Voss told me he had made all sorts of detour, and waited thus late at night, for fear of being watched and followed. But I do not think he was. At any rate, as I afterwards learned from him, the Baron Röder, on hearing of the similitude of this murder with that of his wife in every particular, made such a search after the assassins that although they were not discovered, they were compelled to take flight for the time. I can hardly tell you now by what arrangements Dr. Voss, at first merely my benefactor sparing me a portion of his small modicum, at length persuaded me to become his wife. His wife, he called it. I called it, for we went through the religious ceremony too much slighted at the time and as we were both Lutherans, and Monsieur de la Tourelle had pretended to be of the Reformed religion, a divorce from the latter would have been easily procurable by German law, both ecclesiastical and legal, could we have summoned so fearful a man into any court. The good doctor took me and my child by stealth to his modest dwelling, and there I lived in the same deep retirement, never seeing the full light of day, although when the dye had once passed away from my face, my husband did not wish me to renew it. There was no need. My yellow hair was grey. My complexion was ashen-coloured. No creature could have recognised the fresh-coloured, bright-haired young woman of eighteen months before. The few people whom I saw knew me only as Madame Voss, a widow much older than himself, whom Dr. Voss had secretly married. They called me the Grey Woman. He made me give you his surname. Till now you have known no other father. While he lived, you needed no father's love. Once only, only once more, did the old terror come upon me. For some reason which I forget, I broke through my usual custom and went to the window of my room for some purpose, either to shut or to open it. Looking out into the street for an instant, I was fascinated by the sight of Monsieur de la Tourelle, gay, young, elegant as ever, walking along the opposite side of the street. 
The noise I had made with the window caused him to look up. He saw me, an old grey woman, and he did not recognise me. Yet it was not three years since we had parted, and his eyes were keen and dreadful, like those of a lynx. I told Monsieur Voss on his return home, and he tried to cheer me, but the shock of seeing Monsieur de la Tourelle had been too terrible for me. I was ill for long months afterwards. Once again I saw him, dead. He and Lefebvre were at last caught, hunted down by the Baron de Ruder in some of their crimes. Dr. Voss had heard of their arrest, their condemnation, their death, but he never said a word to me until one day he bade me show him that I loved him by my obedience and my trust. He took me a long carriage journey, where to, I know not, for we never spoke of that day again. I was led through a prison into a closed courtyard, where, decently draped in the last robes of death, concealing the marks of decapitation, lay Monsieur de la Tourelle and two or three others whom I had known at Le Rocher. After that conviction, Dr. Ross tried to persuade me to return to a more natural mode of life and to go out more but although I sometimes complied with his wish, yet the old terror was ever strong upon me, and he, seeing what an effort it was, gave up urging me at last. You know all the rest, how we both mourned bitterly the loss of that dear husband and father, for such I will call him ever, and as such you must consider him my child, after this one revelation is over. Why has it been made, you ask, for this reason, my child? The lover whom you have only known as Monsieur Lebrun, a French artist, told me but yesterday his real name, dropped because the bloodthirsty Republicans might consider it as too aristocratic. It is Maurice de Poissy. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies. So that was The Grey Woman by Mrs. Elizabeth Gaskell. I'm just doing a series of videos of The Woman in Black by Susan Hill on the members only videos thing for people who are members on the YouTube channel or who pay through Substack or Patreon. So I've had very pallid women. I was actually looking for a, a story called The Pale Woman. We've got The Grey Woman, The Black Woman, The Pale Woman, The Woman in White, maybe, but that's very long anyway. Let me say something about The Grey Woman by Mrs. Elizabeth Gaskell. I've already in previous episodes talked about Mrs. Gaskell, so I'm not going to talk about that now. How I propose to do it is to first of all talk about some of the random things that occurred to me as I was reading through and editing it, and then I'll say something about the story structure. So, random things. Disguises. There they are in the Miller's um, loft. So time, time scale-wise, this was published in the 1880s, but it seems to relate to Mrs. Gaskell's trip in Germany in 1841. So it's mid to late Victorian, and it's earlier than Sherlock Holmes. But you remember Sherlock Holmes loved disguises. In fact, the Victorians liked disguises. I think she got carried away by her love of disguises. They dye their hair, obviously. Anna knocks one of her teeth out to make the disguise more perfect. And she burns her lovely blonde hair and Amanda puts corks in her mouth to change the shape of her face, which is admirable, really. And I think anybody on the run should actually think about that if they can, if, you know, because facial recognition, it would defeat it, wouldn't it? it? You know, an old trick of having corks in your mouth defeats uh, modern facial recognition technology, I should hope. 
But the question is, does she keep the corks in her mouth for the next two, three years? And what does it do with her speech, having a load of corks in your mouth? Not to mention eating. I, I'm not sure it's sustainable, the cork in the mouth thing. So I think she got a bit carried away. And we noticed before that Anna had actually bitten a chunk out of her hand to stop herself screaming when she was under the table with the chauffeur coming in the room. So that all good stuff disguises. Now, the other thing is to say that you remember the scene where they're in the blacksmiths, Amant is the husband, the tailor, and poor old Anna is pretending to sew. I'm not sure Anna is a very good sewer, particularly when it's really dark, because you can't see what you're doing. Anyway, he, he comes in, Monsieur de la Tourelle, and he says about his wife, and that, that was a good bit. I really liked that scene. And he enlists the sympathy of the blacksmith and the blacksmith's wife. And the blacksmith's wife is a good creature as well. But she's appalled at this, um, this profligate German wife doing this. And he, he describes her as his wife with her maid from Paris. Now, of course... Amant is one step ahead of this because she's speaking her Norman patois. So there we are. So if she said a Norman maid, perhaps a blacksmith and his wife would have been alerted. Although I think the disguise with the corks in the mouth is probably too perfect for that. In the runaway bit, there are two adventures. There's the blacksmith's incident, the two scenes, if you like, where it comes close and that builds suspense. And the next bit is when the German woman with her French maid, who is mistaken for Anna Scherer, um, goes and gets murdered by Monsieur de Tourelle. You'd have think he would have noticed that it wasn't his wife before he actually killed her. You, you, you would have thought you would have checked. He'd gone, oh, goodness me, you're not her. I'm really sorry. So that's a Baroness de Ruder. It's important for the plot, obviously, because this gives the mechanism by which wrongs are righted, ultimately. But uh, there she is, and it made me smile because the Countess de Ruder creates a bit of a fuss about mixing with the commoners. She doesn't really, and she avoids the common room. She turns, she shies away, turns her head because it's full of evil smells and promiscuous company, and it reminded me of many pubs I have been in in my time, and I don't really go. Well, of course, none of us do over the past year and a half, two years, but uh, yeah, that was a period of my, my life. So these are just random things, as I said. Oh, yeah, there's a plot hole, as I said. In the, in the second part, Anna says, I wasn't brought up as a great lady, and I was a miller's daughter, but Amant was the daughter of a Norman farmer. When in fact, he's actually, it's really important that he was a tailor so that she can learn the trade and therefore go on their, their journey, their escape. A nice touch is the change in colour in Anna as, as symbolic. She's described as having a complexion of uh, lilies and roses. And I commented about strawberries and cream in a previous commentary. But lilies and roses, and by the end, her complexion and her beautiful blonde hair, everything is the colour of ashes, even though she's still a young woman, really, relatively young woman, because when she sees Monsieur de Luterelle out of the window and he doesn't recognise her, again, a lovely touch, he is still young and gay and all that. So she is edged and he hasn't. Oh, the only things I wanted to say were still randomly... Uh, that um, when I was narrating this, you may notice this, I was very conscious of having to rate in, narrate in staccato bursts. It was like, da 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 breathe, da 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 breathe. I don't know if that's the way she, she write, writes it. Different authors I notice now, I keep going about M.R. James, or even Susan Hill. Susan Hill is a modern writer. Well, she means she's 83 now, I think. But she writes in a Victorian style. So she has all these sentences that go 
sentence, tangent, 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 sentence, tangent, tangent, sentence, sentence, you know, and, and they're, like, boop, 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 they're very hard to read. Whereas Mrs. Um, Gaskell is actually, it's like a racehorse, honestly. Duh, 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 duh. So there we are. I, I mentioned Heidelberg, lovely city, Heidelberg, if you've never been. I've only been once. I'd love to go back. Okay. I made one French error, actually. But honestly, uh, le chauffeur sauvage, um, thus the chauffeurs who, who aren't people who drive cars, but in fact are murderers and robbers and bandits. So the bandits really means thus the bandits revenge themselves. They kill the wrong people twice. So they're pretty rubbish. I think they're good at killing people, but they're not very guided. You know, they're, they're uh, what do we say in medical tests? It has a, a high specificity, but specificity, I can't say that word, but a, but a low sensitivity. So it'll get them all, but it might not get the right one. It'll get loads of people, but not the right one. Anyway, you, you may want to look that up. Somebody may question my, <laughs> my explanation of that. Um, numbers needed to treat and evidence-based medicine, but never mind. Okay, so I want to talk about the structure. Because inevitably, these days when you set out to write, and I started in um, screenwriting, you know, in a, a screenplay, everything is supposed to happen at certain points, down to the minute, honestly, down to the minute this happens, the theme is revealed, um, the first setback, the, the protagonist refuses the call, then changes the mind and the going in, and you go from act one to act two. Well, Mrs. Gaskell ignored all of that. Yeah, I think she ignored it. But if, if it resembles it, I think it's through instinct rather than planning. doesn't mean it's not a good story. I enjoyed the story. And of course, it isn't a supernatural story. It was recommended by a listener and I really enjoyed it. We can drift off the supernatural every now and again if we get a good story. And this was, as I said, a, a rollicking Victorian adventure story. But structure-wise, getting back to that. So the first bit, we have the English people going to the garden. Now, my if I was to put money on it, and in some way able to contact Mrs. Gaskell through means of a psychic medium or a Ouija board or something. Don't worry, all of you worried about that. I'm not going to do it. It was a joke. But I think that the incident of the mill and the rainfall by the Rhine near Heidelberg is a remembrance of her trip. I bet that's a real life incident. She thought that was such a lovely time. I'm going to put that in because it's beautifully drawn, that scene. You know, this, the mill with its tiles and everything and its scoured pans is very beautifully described, as I think I commented, and actually more vivid than any other description of a place later on, So, which makes me think this was a real place that Mrs. Gaskell visited probably in 1841. So what's the point of it? The English people get the letter, so what? why not just start with the story of Anna Scherer? Either because she liked the scene and that was the springboard into the story for her, or... Um, it was a way of connecting the English-speaking audience with what would have been a foreign milieu and setting for them. I was going to say about my French mistakes, wasn't I? No grasp of mind. So I made one mistake. I read Sage Femme rather than Sage Femme, who is a midwife, really, but it's a posh word in those days in Germany, known by a French name. I think we mustn't underestimate the influence of French culture in Europe, certainly in those days. Lingua Franca, actually, the common language means the French language, the language of the Franks. So there we go. Yes, back to the, back to the story. So we've got the incident, the, potentially its only purpose is to connect us, English-speaking people, with this foreign country. Okay. The next frame is that the story is told 
through means of letters from Anna Scherer to her daughter. And the pretext is she's finally revealing the truth because her daughter is going to get married. And we start the letters with, you must not marry and I will tell you why. And you have all that story. And at the end you get, oh, and this is why. So that's neat. I'm not sure what it has to do with the story because the reason she can't marry this guy, Monsieur Lebrun, a painter, is because he, he is his real name. So there's dates to remember. Published in the 1880s, probably refers to her travels in Germany in 1841, but set in the 1780s, late, late 18th century, when the French Revolution and the terror and the Revolutionary Wars were going on. So Monsieur Lebon changed, Mr. Brown changes his name from, because um, he's really the son of the Sieur de Poissy, who's an aristocrat, because the um, revolutionaries would probably chop his head off. Now, why can't Anna Scherer's daughter marry him? Maybe the fact, if she'd done something like he was related by blood, closely, like, I think we did Vendetta, didn't we, by Ray Russell, and that device is there about the brother and sister marrying, which is a very old device, you know. Maybe, maybe it was too rich for her blood, I don't know. I'm like, well, so your horrible father, biological father, killed his dad. Not good, not good. But, you know, it's not your fault. And I don't really see that as a, an obstacle to marriage, but there we are. But it allowed at the end, she wrote it in a nice way. Morris's real name was. And in fact, if you remember, she drops the name Maurice in because, and this is deliberately, so she's good at this. I mean, she's good at what she does. So very early on, you remember, over the dead body of the Sieur de Poissy, who's under the table, which causes Anna to bite her hand. This is Sieur de Poissy, who she is. The only time she ever met him was when he was dead. And now her daughter wants to marry his son, right? But they laugh over the letter they've come, and it's all the love words and the sweet Maurice. This is Maurice, who appears at the end. It's the thing when you're writing something, if you suddenly mention the letter with sweet Maurice and then you, then you introduce Maurice, there's not enough gap between it. So the reader goes, oh, come on. You just, oh, come on. This is the whole art of foreshadowing. If you drop something early on and then you bring it up at the end, the reader goes, aha, I'd forgotten that. So, uh, and she does this well throughout. One of the examples is the crooked jeweler. About halfway through the story, she mentions they sell this unusual ring to this crooked jeweler. Mm, and then they see him. And then if, if she just said at the end, oh God, that she got murdered. It was because of the crooked jeweler we sold the ring to and then tells you at the end, we wouldn't have been impressed by that. But, but the fact she's dropped it, I mean, it's a simple trick, but it works. I don't know why we're more impressed because she told us um, half an hour, an hour before, but we are, we just are. It's the way it works. So there we are, the crooked jeweler. So that's well set up. So the frame is the letters. You can't marry him because he's done. And that, all the story is contained in that. You could say, why didn't she do the story just as a, as a, as a third person observation, you know, third person, Anna and Amant walking through the snow. I don't think it actually snowed in the story. And the other thing that a modern, I said this before, a modern editor, the manual of writing wouldn't let you have is who is the protagonist? So the protagonist in a modern story is supposed to be the one who faces all the challenges, who has all the setbacks, who, reaches the victory. So in a modern story, you could have had the same thing, but Anna would have had to be the hero, not Amant. Amant is the one with the brains and the wit and the cunning. And Anna is very passive. She just follows on. They wouldn't have that. They'd make you rewrite it so that Anna was the boss. You need Amant so they can bounce things off each other. 
because otherwise, you know, and you see that with, with books and, and films. You have to have two people so you can have a and TV, you know, have a bit of dialogue so you can reveal things. But, um, you know, Anna is very passive in the story. That wouldn't cut it in a modern story. And, you know, the, how it's tied up is the evil Monsieur de Luterelle gets his comeuppance because, and this is neatly put in, he murders by mistake the Baroness de Roeder and the Baron de Roeder, where the second murder happens, goes for him, has him, that's it, and breaks him. That should have been in a modern story, Anna, that defeated him. You watch all your movies now and you'll see it's a protagonist that defeats the antagonist, the villain, always. So there we are, structure-wise. So after all of that, it was a rollicking fun story. It was quite long. I think I need to do some shorter stories now. I'm getting all of these recommendations. And me being a bit slapdash, I kind of go, oh, yeah, that's okay. Right, yeah, fine, I'll do that. And I don't read the whole thing through before. And I kind of presume because it was called The Grey Woman, there'd be a ghost in it. I'm not against stories that don't have ghosts. It's just the, the branding of the podcast, I suppose. Maybe you don't mind. I don't know. I don't mind. You don't mind. Let's change the name. The Classic Stories Podcast. How about that? Yeah, so I need to do something shorter. I had a wonderful recommendation, The Centaur by Algernon Blackwood. And it's a good-looking story. I haven't read it. I've skimmed it. It's 90,000 words. That's as long as Dracula. And remember, it, I did Dracula as members only. and that took me, I swear, just after Christmas. It took me about six months, honestly, to the beginning of June to, to get it done. So I, can, I can, just simply can't do a 90,000-word novel. It just, people's attention breaks and falls away. Anyway, that's that. I haven't done much moaning today about life, so I'll keep it like that. It's a lovely sunny day here. I'm going to go out for a walk. I borrowed a dog, so Sheila, my partner's, son, my stepson, I suppose, uh, he has a dog and uh, we've got her for the weekend. So that is an absolute delight because despite what people say, I really do like dogs and it's sh shade, as she's called, is, is such a joy. Um, my dream is to have a, a puppy and a kitten together. They grow up together as friends because I really like when animals are friends. I know I, I do horrible things to them in my stories, but I do horrible things to people. And the thing to remember is it doesn't really happen. And I would never do things like that in real life, so don't worry. Don't worry. Just, just enjoy yourselves. Okay, uh, have I got a call to action? Mm, yeah. Mm. Keep on keeping on, I suppose. That's my call to action. You keep on keeping on. Stay happy. Stay content. Remember, I do this with my patients sometimes. So I don't know why I'm going to do this here. We all think, we think about the future. Oh, we don't know what's around the corner. And depending, and a lot of people worry about the future. What if everything's okay? And even if it isn't okay, let us just have 10 minutes now when you're listening to these stories when actually everything is okay. What a relief that would be. So that's what, that is my mission statement. I want, I want everybody listening to these stories just to think for the duration, everything is fine. There's nothing to worry about. Okay. And with that thought, I will leave you.
Isn't that stuff? Isn't that stuff? Isn't that stuff?